Hello, everyone. Good morning. To be completely honest, I had the hardest time writing the intro to this sermon because I want to jump right into our text, which I didn't even get to read yet, um, which is the first church. Uh, we're, we're seven churches. I wanted to talk about the first church today, the church in Ephesus. But we're in Revelation. I mean, there's so much to say by way of introduction into the book of Revelation. So what I think I'll do is I'll stretch out the intro over the next several weeks, giving you some introductory thoughts at the beginning of each sermon over the next few weeks. So it's not like one giant long hour and a half sermon on an introduction to the book. So I'm just going to sprinkle it throughout the next couple weeks. Fair enough? But there's so much to say about Revelation. So let's start here. There's a million places to start, but I want to start here. What kind of book is Revelation? What kind of book is Revelation. This is the first question of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art of interpreting Scripture. This is such an important question when you begin to study any book. You pick up any of the book of the Bible, you should ask yourself, what kind of book is this? There are 66 books in the Bible. So when you pick up the Bible, it's actually, the Bible is actually a library. It's not a single book. It's a library of different books made up of different books of several different kinds of literature or different kinds of genre. For example, there's poetry, and there's wisdom literature, and there's history, and, and prophecy, and narrative, and apocalyptic writings, and letters. Now, the reason this is so important to note is because you, with every different genre, you approach it a little bit differently, or you should approach it a little bit differently. Um, you don't read 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, like you would read the book of Revelation. You read those books differently. Um, you don't read the Psalms like you read uh, uh, the, narratives, uh, the narrative of the book of Acts. You read the Psalms differently than you read the, the Acts of the Apostles. It, just like you don't read poetry like you read history. You don't read uh, a news story the same way as you read satire, right? I mean, you don't. I mean, like, it depends on maybe your news source, but you typically don't read news like you read satire. I think we all understand and get different genres. We get this. The question right here, and the question uh, 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 as we approach Revelation is the question of genre, and it's the biggest contributor to reading the book of Revelation faithfully. We have to understand what kind of book this is. Genre is absolutely crucial for proper interpretation of any book, especially the work, a work like Revelation. You have to know what you're reading. So what are we reading when we read Revelation? Are we reading about the end times? Are we using the book of Revelation like a crystal ball to find out what the mark of the beast is? Not joking, I saw on my Facebook feed this week someone posting this video. I mean, it had like 15 million views or something like that. And the thousands of comments of they found the mark of the beast. It's in Sweden and it's a chip. It's a thing they put under their wrist and it unlocks doors and it allows you to make copies on copy machines in the office. <laughs> and it's like, this is it. We got it. It's here. It's finally here. And it's like we were looking at Revelation to go like, and then all these people were commenting, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get that. Like, I'll just make copies by typing in my passcode. Like, I'm not ever going to get that thing. <laughs> and we use Revelation like a crystal ball. Like, what is the mark of the beast? And it's been different things over the, the last several years. It's been barcodes. It's been, you know, your phone in your pocket. I mean, it's been all kinds of stuff. Um, or is, do we look, we read Revelation to find out who the Antichrist will be. Spoiler alert, it'll probably be our next president. Always our next president. That's who the Antichrist is. <laughs> It's always our next president. <laughs> or when the tribulation will happen so we can be ready and run off to the hills with our zombie kits. Like people have these things. They're real. Like I have a kit. And when the whole thing hits the fan, I'm out of here and I have my zombie kit and I'm running to the hills because that's what Revelation tells me to do. How do we read this book? 
How, do we, how are we supposed to understand it? Okay, here's the genre of Revelation. Revelation is an apocalypse. That's a fun word. Revelation is an apocalypse. Revelation is also a prophecy. And Revelation is also a letter, a pastoral letter. Revelation is an, an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a pastoral letter. In other words, Revelation is a hybrid document. It's three of these genres together, which makes it a little bit even more tricky to understand. Let me show you this. I, don't take my word for it. Let me just show it to you. We read it a second ago. Look, look at chapter 1, verse 1 in your, in, your, in your Bible. It's also on the screen if you don't have it. But look. It says, the revelation, that word in Greek is, a, is apocalypsis. It's literally the word apocalypse. Okay, so it's an apocalypse. There it is. The apocalypse from Jesus, or some of your translations say of Jesus, I think, uh, it, it, I think probably it's the word of. It's the same type of word, like the revelation of or from. Of or from Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John. Now, this is very important in apocalyptic literature because a, a, an apocalypse is a revelation mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's a main indicator of an apocalyptic genre. So it's, it's given by an angel or it's given by God, someone otherworldly to a human recipient, and they're supposed to write it down. So it says right here, it's an apocalypse given, made known by an angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's a revelation of Jesus. When people say it's a revelation of the end times, you just take them to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and say, actually, it's a revelation of Jesus. It testifies to everything that he saw. What did he see? The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this, what? Prophecy. Okay, there it is. It's a prophecy. So not only is it an apocalypse, it's a prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what's written in it because time is near. Now, let's, now look, it almost switches genres now. Look, John, John, not Jean, John, sorry. <laughs> John. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now it's starting to sound like a letter. This is how Paul started a lot of his letters. Grace and peace to you. Paul would start his letters like that. Grace and peace to you from Paul and whoever I'm with. This is grace and peace from God the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. So this is like, and it's to these churches. So it takes on an apocalypse. It takes on prophecy and it takes on a letter. One, uh, most scholars agree, it says on the screen, that Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. It's an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular Okay, that's great. So you have that down. You can write that down in notes and sound really smart. But what does that mean? What does an apocalypse mean? Okay, so the word apocalypse or the genre of apocalypse is literally the unveiling. It literally means unveiling or revelation, revealing, the, the, the disclosure of something. Now, the definition of that word has changed. Now, to us, apocalypse means the end of the world as we know it. Apocalypse to us, to our ears today, means end times disaster. So now we have a very popular genre of movies and TV shows and books that are apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic in genre. Basically movies about the end of the world or movies about what, what, what it will be like after the world has ended. Movies like Mad Max Fury Road that just came out this last year or Interstellar that I told you to watch and a lot of you hated me for it uh, or World War Z 
or The Road came out a few years ago, or if you're super like throwback, 12 Monkeys, or Terminator 1, 2, 3, Salvation, Gen all the Terminators, right? <laughs> or TV shows like The Last Man on Earth, that was a pretty funny show, uh, The Walking Dead, maybe you're into that. that, that those are kind of po apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic entertainment, meaning it's about the end of the earth or what life will be like after the earth gets a huge apocalyptic reboot. So when we think of Revelation as being apocalyptic, we tend to treat it as the same category of this kind of entertainment. Actually, there was a series of books written from 1995 to 2007 that have sold over 65 million copies. 65 million called Left Behind. And this is entertainment taken from a dramatized part of Revelation. But it was kind of sold as theology. There was actually a movie that came out just last year called Left Behind starring Nick Cage. Starring Nick Cage, everybody. It's entertainment. I mean, it's not good entertainment. I got like 2% of Rotten Tomatoes, but it's entertainment. <laughs> that, it's, it's what it is. But now listen, this is so important. The apocalyptic genre of revelation doesn't mean what we mean when we think of the apocalyptic genre of entertainment. The apocalyptic genre of revelation is, doesn't mean what we mean when we think of the apocalyptic genre of entertainment. Apocalyptic literature is an unveiling, a revealing, in order to disclose something, a pulling back of current reality, a pulling back of current reality to show you what's really going on in ultimate reality. So what's happening in vivid, just crazy, colorful language in Revelation is a pulling back of, of, of reality as we know it to reveal an ultimate reality, an eternal reality that. To, to, to strike at our hearts, to do something in us, to allow us to see that, that life is more than what we see. There's actually something going on behind the scenes. Apocalyptic genre borrows heavily from Old Testament apocalyptic genre uh, like, uh, or literature like Daniel, um, Ezekiel, Isaiah. So a lot of the references to Revelation have to do with the Old Testament. So if, if Revelation is pulling back of reality to show you ultimate reality, what is Revelation revealing? The answer is it's revealing Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ or the revelation from Jesus Christ about his testimony, about his witness. Um, if you have the Message Bible, the book of Revelation opens like this, a revealing of Jesus, the Messiah. I, I, I agree with that interpretation. That's, that's what I think it's saying. Revelation is vivid. Revelation is symbolic. Revelation is over the top, and it's supposed to create in you both an awareness of current realities and a hope of future reconciliation. It's supposed to do something in us. And one of my favorite books, we don't have it today in the bookstore, we will have it next week, on Revelation, an easy short read on like how do we even understand this book, is by a theologian named Michael Gorman called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And in it he says this, I mean just kind of a long quote, but I'll read it slow so you get it, about apocalyptic genre. He says, scholars debate the origins of apocalyptic theology and literature, but its basic function seems fairly clear. Here's the function of apocalyptic literature, to sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis, particularly evil and oppression. Apocalyptic literature both expresses and creates hope by offering scathing critique of the oppressors, passionate exhortations to defiance, and sometimes even preparation for confrontation. 
and unfailing confidence in God's ultimate defeat of the present evil, usually articulated in symbolic, even cryptic language. This hope means that that apocalyptic language is also the language and literature of resistance. He goes on, apocalyptic theology includes uh, a temporal dualism. Temporal meaning having to do with time. It says, it divides history into two ages, the age, this age and the age to come. The present age is characterized by evil, injustice, oppression, and persecution, while the coming age will be of goodness, justice, and peace. Listen, since these two ages are so antithetical, and since the current age is so completely infested, it's infested, the, the kingdom of God is here, but, it's, but our, our current age it is completely infested with the power of Satan and evil, apocalyptic theology is marked by pessimism. That's when you read, it, read Revelation, you're like, oh my gosh, what, this, is, this sounds really, really bad. It's marked by pessimism. There is no hope for a human solution to the crisis of this age. This is what apocalyptic genre does. Only God can and will intervene to set things right. Therefore, apocalyptic pessimism does not have the final word. It gives way to optimism. This is not optimism based on human activity, but confidence in the coming triumph of God. So over and over again, if you've read the book of Revelation as a whole, you will see that Revelation breaks into doxology or worship all the time. There's this thing that happens, and all of a sudden you get this scene of like witnesses worshiping Jesus, or people before the throne of God, or an angel saying, blessed is the one who is, who was and is, is to come, the Almighty. Blessed is the Lamb who was slain, who's worthy to receive glory and honor, and, and that's over and over and over again. And then you even get this like scene in Revelation 6, where, where it's like the throne room of God, and... Um, and these souls that have been slain because of their witness to Jesus and they're asking God, how long, God, until you, until you make right the world? How long till you avenge our death? We, were, we died unjustly. How long will this go on on earth? And God says, not yet. A little longer. This is what you're supposed to take apocalyptic literature in and let it hit you all at once. Like with a torrent of like true evil. You're supposed to see that we're not to be seduced by, if you were here last week, by Babylon. That we're not to be seduced by our culture. And it's supposed to hit us with like, oh my gosh, maybe my culture truly is evil. Maybe it is. And it's supposed to hit you that way. And it's supposed to hit you with this powerful hope in the ultimate reality of God. That God is on the throne still. No matter what's going on, God is on the throne. It's supposed to do that. Revelation is supposed to make you feel something. I mean, it's okay to read it and just do this. Just go, what, what do you think about Revelation? You go, wow. Wow. That's, that's okay to do. It's okay to go, what's your, what's your like, how do you read Revelation? This is how I read Revelation. Wow. It, it, probably, it would probably be a lot better if you'd read it like that than trying to cut it up and match it up to current events. If you just took it all in. As an apocalyptic document, that's how we should take it in. And it gives way to ultimate future so that you know how to live your life in the present, how to rightly align your life to the promised future. So we read a little bit of apocalyptic, the apocalyptic part of Revelation chapter 1, and we'll get back to it in chapter 4 all the way through to the end of the book. So that's apocalypse. You still with me? Second, prophecy. This won't be quick, I promise. We think prophecy is about telling the future. Whereas prophecy in the biblical tradition is not primarily about making pronouncements and predictions concerning the future. Rather, prophecy is speaking words of comfort and or challenge on behalf of God. 
Prophecy is speaking comfort and challenge on behalf of God to the people of God in their concrete historical situation. This is the biblical tradition of prophecy. Again, Michael Gorman, he says this. Prophets comfort God's people in crisis because they need assurance that despite all things to the contrary, God is God and will one day bring an end to all evil and depression. On the other hand, prophets warn the people about coming judgment because the people may be participating in or be tempted to participate in the very evil for which the oppressive system and its perpetrators will be judged. In fact, in the case of Revelation, we have clear evidence that John believes some of the churches to which he writes were engaging in forms of idolatry and immorality, the general categories for sins against God and sins against neighbor, that the human forces of evil were practicing. This is part of the fundamental and perpetual message of both Old and New Testament prophets. Flee idolatry, flee immorality, or in Revelation's version of this message, come out. In chapter 18, verse 4, if you want to highlight that or write that down, this is the, this is the point of all of the book of Revelation. Come out, my people, so you will not share in her sins. Now, it's ironic that they're all written to churches that were in cities. So God is not saying come out of the city, but let the city come out of the church. Let the culture come out of the church. Come out of her. Don't be a part of her idolatry. Don't be a part, be drunken with her, with her idolatry, with her, with her immorality. Don't be seduced by your city. That's what the book of Revelation is. Come out. It's a prophecy. It's written to encourage us and challenge us. But lastly, it's a letter that was to be circulated to the seven churches around Asia Minor, which, were, which, was, it, which is modern-day Turkey, meaning that the book of Revelation must be firmly grounded in history, the context of the first century. So we have to read this book in the context of the first century. The primary meaning of any book of the Bible is the meaning it had to the original audience. So if we think Revelation is about current events, then it wasn't about events going on in the first century, and it hasn't really meant anything from the first century to about 1970, which is just silly. Revelation had meaning, and it's had meaning for the last two millennia. These were actual churches that the message of Revelation actually meant something to them and to their context. The whole book did. And because it's Scripture, it means something to us today. So here is a map. I, I, I show you a map every two years, so here it is. Take it in. Here's a map of Asia Minor during the time of the writing of Revelation, modern-day Turkey. You notice a little dot that says Patmos on the bottom left? That's where John was exiled. This is where John got the revelation. And then the next, the next slide is a route, the route of, of how Revelation was to circulate around the churches. So if you read Revelation 2 and 3, this was the route. So it's supposed to go to Ephesus and then like kind of go clockwise to the churches. So someone was, was to take this to the churches and then they would pass it along and then read the revelation aloud to everyone as they went around. So this is apocalyptic, prophetic, circular letter was supposed to make its way around these churches. But, and here's kind of where we get into our text today. But at the beginning of this revealing, Jesus started by addressing each church and gave them an annual review this is so scary, guys. Have you ever got one of those? Like, they're, they're kind of fun. They're like, hey, you're doing this. You're like, oh, thank you. But I, I have to tell you about this. You're like, oh. But Jesus said it to the whole church. He like, okay, so I'm going to circulate this letter to the whole churches, but I want to, Jesus wants to address every single church. And the thing is that every single church heard about every single other church's thing. That's 
Can you, can you imagine that for a second? Jesus wrote a church to every church like in San Francisco. Like, hey, this is where you're doing good, and I have this against you. That's I'm, so scary. So, so it went around. At the beginning of this revealing, Jesus addresses these churches, and it went through every church. Now, look at Revelation 119 real quick so, so we understand what, 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 we're, what we're dealing with here. Uh, it says, Write, therefore, to John what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. And so he's going to explain to this vision, this apocalyptic vision he sees of, of golden lampstands and angels. He actually gives an interpretation, a meaning of the symbolism. He says, they are this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus calls churches, every church is a lampstand. Look, look, think about this. Every church is a lampstand. Every church is supposed to be this, this like light of the world. And uh, this lampstand has even Old Testament symbolism. Like in Zechariah, you have this golden lampstand that was fueled by the Spirit of God. So these churches are like lights of the world because Jesus called us to be lights of the world and fueled by like the Spirit of God. That's what every church is supposed to be, golden lampstands. Then it says every church has an angel. This is a trip. Every church has an angel. Angel literally means messenger. Now there's two interpretations of this. Every church has a messenger, meaning every church got the letter and like, gave it and read it out loud, like, hey, I got this letter from John, and I'm the messenger of this church, and let me read it to you. That's one interpretation. That, I think that's a good interpretation. Or it's literally like a, an, an angelic being. Now, is this heavenly or not? I think, since Revelation is a heavenly book in the sense that it reveals what's going on in a dimension that we cannot see, Jesus is saying that every church has an existence in a dimension that we cannot see. Every church has a dimension before God in heaven. And so what every church is doing has like eternal heavenly consequences. It's, we're not just this like physical church in San Francisco that is not accountable to anyone. We're actually before God and are accountable to God. We are seated in eternity. We are seated in the heavenly. So we can't play around here. Like this is not something to experiment with. This is not something to play around with. The church is before God. Which brings me to now the churches. What is Jesus trying to get across to these seven churches in the midst of persecution? In the midst of living in cities that were pluralistic, that worshipped all these other gods, that practiced and celebrated immorality of all kinds, all kinds, Probably as much, if not more, than our city does today. How is a church, what was Jesus' What was Jesus' main message to that church? What is Jesus trying to say to every single one of these churches? I, I heard the best illustration from a sermon a couple of months ago getting ready for this. And I'm just going to steal it because it's that good. I'm just going to steal it right away. It was, a, it, was a, it was a woman who was teaching. I don't know, I don't remember her name. She was a guest teacher at the, one of this podcast I was listening to. And she said, she, she compared the letter of the, the letter to the seven churches to that scene, that amazing scene in Dead Poet Society. Remember that scene where Robin Williams tells everyone to huddle up in poetry class? He's like, huddle up, huddle up. And he has them all, and he bends down, and he has everyone around him, and he says, we read and write poetry not because it's cute, because the human race is filled with passion, he says. He says, people have all these, different, all these different professions. They're doctors or this or that and this. And those are all great. 
And they're, they're needed for life. He says, but poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. And then he quotes Walt Whitman. I, I won't do it justice, so I'm gonna, I have the, we have the audio. So just listen to this. Oh, me. Oh, life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish. What good amid these, oh, me, oh, life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? You guys remember that scene? It's so, if you haven't seen that movie, you're crazy. <laughs> to the seven churches in the province of Asia, write that this powerful, cosmic, eternal play goes on and you, church, may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? The millions of churches since Revelation have joined the powerful, cosmic, eternal play and it goes on and Reality San Francisco, Reality Church in San Francisco may contribute a verse. What will our verse be? This is what the, seven, the letters of the seven churches are. God has this cosmic thing going on. This cosmos, cosmic reconciliation of the entire cosmos. He's bringing it all together and every single church he has plays a part in it. And every single church he has has to be accountable to him. Not to themselves, not to their board, not to their city, not to what's popular in their city, but to Jesus Christ. And it goes on and on and on and every single little church gets to contribute a small verse. And every church is asked, what, what are you going to do? What will your verse be? And the time and the place that God has allowed you to have a lampstand, what will your verse be? And so that's why when we read this, this is how I want to read our, the letters as we go through them together. Jesus, most of the churches, he commends something in them. And so what I want to do is I want to look at their commendation, and I want to ask us how we're doing with that. Because Jesus likes that in a church. It's his church. It's not my church. It's not reality's church. This is Jesus' church. And so, like, how are we doing? And then he gives a warning to almost every single church. He gives a warning. And I want to take their warning as our warning. That's how I want to look at it. Because Jesus deeply cares about his church. To the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Chapter 2. That's what he says. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus walking among the church. Meaning, Jesus walks among this church. He knows. That's what he says in every single, to every single church. I know. I know. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's so good. Next verse. Yet I hold this against you. I would, my heart would just explode if I heard that. Like it would just sink. 
you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you hear that? Not just this church, the churches, all of our church. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus was a very faithful witness. It had powerful impact in its city. Ephesus was a big city, a port city. The temple of Artemis was there, and people worshipped Artemis, and the gospel went into this city. In Acts chapter 19, you can read about it, um, I don't know, when you get home or when you have time. Acts chapter 19, it talks about the entrance, that there were some disciples there, and Paul goes in, and he, and he, and he starts to work, the gospel, work for the gospel and plant a church and doing these things, and so many people became followers of Jesus that it impacted Ephesus' economy. There's so many people that became Christians that it impacted their economy. They were not buying statues anymore. People were getting saved and not buying little idols and statues of Artemis. And there was actually a riot from small business owners and craftsmen who made these little trinkets, these little idols. And they would riot. They're saying that when the gospels comes in, we don't have business anymore. And it's ruining our economy. The church shifted Ephesus's, Ephesus' economy. It shifted their economy because people were becoming followers of Jesus. So Paul stayed there for a couple years. And then when he left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, which is one of my favorite portions of Scripture when it talks about eldership, what I'm actually called to be in this church, one of the elders here, he, after having spent a couple years there, he wept with the Ephesian elders and he empowered them and he said this to the, to the elders in Ephesus. He said, keep watch over the flock. Like your job is to love and shepherd and keep watch over this flock that God has entrusted you with. And I know that when I leave, he says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. He's speaking of false doctrine. False doctrine will come into the church and will want to ravish the church and they will want to believe all these abhorrent things. But you hold fast to the truth. Fight the good fight. This is what Paul was saying to the Ephesian elders. So Jesus commends them. Later on, later on Jesus commends them for their good works. They, the church has done that. The elders have been faithful to keep this church free from false doctrine. Jesus says, here, here is where I commend you. You have good works, Ephesus. And the good works are these, hard work and perseverance. You work hard. This church was willing to sweat. This church was willing to toil and work hard for the ministry and the cause of Christ in Ephesus. They worked hard for the cause of Christ in Ephesus. They weren't building their own kingdom. They were building the kingdom of God. They were about Jesus' business in Ephesus. And they worked hard at it. They were willing to persevere in the midst of like business owners rejecting them and, and persecution coming from all around them. No matter how hard it got in Ephesus, no matter how many other things that tried to distract them away from the program of the ministry of Jesus in Ephesus, they persevered. And Jesus isn't lying here. He was honest. You work hard. Good job. And you're persevering. Good job. He's really commending them for it. So let's check in. How are we doing? as a church. This is hard to sit with, guys. We've sat with it. Um, we have a team of people who sit with the sermon, the implications of the sermon every week. We've sat with this in front of our church. How are we doing with this? Well, let me say this. There are some in our church that know the cost it is to live and follow Christ in San Francisco and could have left to a lot easier life somewhere else. But they sense God call them here 
and you have stayed here and worked hard here and persevered here where it's not easy to live as a follower of the way of Jesus. And I think that you should be commended for it. I'm sure that that Jesus would commend many in this church for that. I mean, it's a lot easier to live as a Christian in other places where there's more American creature comforts and more conservative atmospheres in which to raise your family and to walk around. Yes, there, there are. But you have decided, no, I'm, I'm going to slug it out here for the cause of Christ and his inbreaking kingdom in this, in this town. I'm here. And it's hard, and I can live a way different life, way more comfortable life somewhere else, but I'm going to tough it out here. Good job. And we, we honestly do think that. And I think that Jesus would commend many in our church for that. But there are people in this church, in our church, that are working very hard on their thing their life and their job, whenever it comes to serving in the church or in church leadership or even being part of community, committed community, too busy is the excuse. Too busy here. I'm just too busy. And I think Christ would have us ask all of me, all of us, too busy with what? What are you too busy with? What are you working hard for? Would Christ commend our church for working hard toward the kingdom of God, toward his church? Jesus, there is, here, I mean, I think it's pretty clear when he's writing to these churches that to, to Jesus, to be busy with his church. Jesus' church is the most important thing in the world to him. He's writing to his church. Is church a hot mess? Yes. But, At its best, it's an unstoppable force. It's a beautiful mess of people broken but being made new by Jesus and are being conforming their lives to the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ and the leadings of Christ together. The church is a beautiful thing when it works. And we should be about Christ's church, which is Christ's people. Ephesus, when it came to hard work and perseverance for Jesus' church, was killing it. They were doing so good. And then Jesus commends them for their theology. They cannot tolerate wicked people. I mean, it's ta- and this is a pretty taboo thing to say, right? They were intolerant. Can you say Ephesus, the intolerant church? And Jesus goes, way, way to be intolerant. I mean, it's kind of taboo to be intolerant these days. But not tolerating evil in our lives as followers of Jesus is commendable by Jesus. Not tolerating evils, evil in our lives. I, I just started reading this book a friend told me to read. Um, I won't give away the premise. I don't really even understand the premise yet because I'm just like a chapter in. I don't really sci-fi, so I don't really get sci-fi. So I'm trying, I'm trying. It's called The Book of Strange New Things. And, and the, the first chapter, husband and wife, and just one scene that I think is pretty applicable here is that they're watching, um, they're watching a girl st- at, a, at an airport steal candy bars and then put them in her coat and then she runs out of the store and runs into the bathroom. And the husband's like, oh my gosh, I just witnessed a robbery. And, and his wife goes, yeah, I saw it too. He goes, we should, we should go after her. We should like do, do something. You know, as Christians, we should do something. She goes like, what, like a citizen's arrest? He goes, I don't know. Like we're Christians, we have to do something. And she says, if you, if you catch her, she'll just hate the people that caught her. He goes, then what do we do as Christians? And she said this. She said, as Christians, we should spread the love of Christ. And if we do our job right, we'll create people who don't want to do wrong. And he like sits with that for a minute. If we are people... And I, and I sat with that for a minute too. I'm like, hmm. If we're actually doing our jobs right by spreading the love and the truth of Christ, we'll create the kind of people who don't want to do wrong. This is, I think that's the gospel. 
I think that's what happens when the gospel penetrates someone's life. When you surrender your life to Jesus, like, I don't want to do wrong anymore. If we are a people who don't tolerate evil in us and don't tolerate evil in our community and love and in truth and in grace call out evil and repent of it openly, we will create, I think, a people. We will create a pocket, a little inbreaking kingdom of God in the city where, I think, people don't want to do wrong. They tested false teachers, apostles. They hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, no one knows who the Nicolaitans were, but everyone agrees on this. They had, had something to do with calling evil good in the church. Calling something immoral, okay. So, let's check in. It's almost over, I promise. It's really quiet in here. It's almost over. How are we doing with this? This one's hard. This one's hard to do. How is our theology, our doctrine, our belief, do they line up with Jesus and Scripture and Christ's, like the Word of God? How's our beliefs? Let me ask us this question. Has your doctrine or has your theology changed since moving to San Francisco? Rhetorical, don't answer out loud, just think about it. Has any part of your belief or doctrine or theology changed since moving to San Francisco? And then let me ask you this question. Which ones? How have they changed? And why have they changed? We should sit with this. I think one of the greatest dangers for our church, and this has been seriously a huge fear of mine since day one of this church, is that we become theologically unfaithful. That we, we, we would look so much like our town that we, you can't even recognize us as Christ followers anymore. Other than we gather on Sunday morning and we try not to cuss as much. That would be it. Other than that, they sing really loud and, you know, they do like communion. But other than that, they just kind of don't. They kind of believe everything else everyone else believes. Ephesus was faithful. They were faithful New doctrines and beliefs would blow through their city and they would test out the, their, these doctrines against the scriptures and the teaching of the apostles and they would sit down and they would study and yet, yeah, listen, Jesus says, good job, good job, good job. Yet, yeah, I hold this against you. And our hearts should sink when we read that. To think that Jesus loves a church enough to tell it when it's wrong. This is a warning because Jesus loves them. He says this, you have forsaken your first love. Okay, just stop here. This doesn't undo anything that they were doing. Please, don't, don't, hear, don't say it. They, they, forsook their, they forsook their first love, so they were, they were busy, but they shouldn't have been busy. No, 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 no. Jesus commends them for being busy. He wasn't like lying to them. He wasn't like, hey, you're busy, but I really don't like your business. He actually says, good job. I commend you for being busy, for working hard, for persevering, for holding the true doctrine. Great. But here's the deal. You've forsaken your first love. You forsake it, and this is what he gives them the the strongest consequence of any other church. It says in verse 5, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What's a lampstand? The church. What is he saying? If you do not repent, you will no longer be a church. If you do not repent, I will wipe you out, and you will no longer be a church. Now, I don't know if um, that means that Jesus doesn't recognize them as a church or the church disintegrates. I have no idea. But you're just like, uh, this is, the, this is the, the strongest rebuke. And you would think that, and Ephesus has a lot going on, a lot of good going on. But they lost their first love. 
What this means is that their deeds became cold deeds. They were doing deeds. They were doing good deeds that the gospel was going for. I mean, people were like coming to know Christ, but Jesus ceased to be a person. Jesus ceased to be an object of love and affection and commitment, and Jesus turned into a system. Jesus was a system that gave them something bigger than themselves to do. It gave them purpose. It gave them identity. They were the Ephesian church that did not compromise. That's who we are in in our city. We're not the church that compromises. But they forgot who they were doing it for and who they were doing it with. They forgot why on earth they had started following Jesus in the first place. They forgot that you're to love the Lord, your God, with everything that you have. This has ruined me. This has absolutely ruined me when I read this. As I've sat with this, this is completely, to think that, that I can be married to my wife out of obligation and be faithful to her out of obligation and good works, but not motivated by love for Jesus, and Jesus would go, I have that against you, Dave. It's so scary. That I can be committed to this church and the purity of this church and the witness of this church in San Francisco, but I do it out of obligation and I do it because it's my job and not out of love for Jesus. And Jesus would say, I have this against you. Yes, 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 you've, you've, you've said this. Yes, you've wrestled through these things. Yes, you've tried to remain pure. Yes, you try to be a witness, but you've done it because it's your job. You've done it because what else are you going to do? Where are you going to go? You've done it because like, now you have this thing and you have to keep it going. You don't do it out of love for me. This last week, I was looking through pictures of our, before the church started, because we're, tonight we start night services at Dolores Park Church, where our church started prayer meetings at. I was looking through pictures, and there was this one picture that came up when one of my friends and pastor, Pastor Britt Merrick, was laying hands on me and praying, and I was there, and I remember, like, I saw the picture, I remember all the emotion and thought that ran through my head, like, I would do anything for Christ, anything, because I loved him. And I felt like, I felt like um, this last week, Jesus was like, is that the same, is that, is that the same today? Because, the, guys, the church can become a, like a system. It needs to function and it needs to operate and it, with deadlines and culture and consistency and staff positions and it has to do this thing and everyone has to keep this thing. But are we doing it because we're, because we're here and we can't just like all leave? Or are we doing it because we love Christ? Do we still do this because we love Jesus? I mean, if you've drifted away from love for Christ, if you drifted away and you're even, I don't know even why you're here, you just came because your thing, like Sunday morning, I'll just come here and I'll meet people and whatever. And then you've drifted in your love and your affection towards Christ. I'm just going to read to you the, uh, a prophecy given by Jeremiah in the Old Testament to Israel, his first love. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, go and proclaim the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. This is the prophecy, meaning comfort and, and confrontation. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Stop there. Like, sit for that for a minute. I don't know if you've, if you've ever really truly had this moment in your life where you loved Jesus and you were devoted and you were young in the faith and you were like completely devoted to Jesus because, because you know he loved you and you loved him. And you followed him through weird things and weird places. And you did weird things for him. Israel was holy to the Lord, it goes on. The first fruits of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. And he says this, hear with the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob. 
All who, all you clans of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Listen, he says, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? You know what God was saying to them? Remember when you used to love me and like be devoted to me and everything was motivated out of a love for me? What did I do to you? What did I do to you? What, what, what did you find out there that was better than me? I mean, this is a question that we should sit with. I mean, if we've strayed from the love of God and we're doing good things out of duty and obligation and cold religion, we should ask ourselves, what, what, what did God's asking us? What did you find out there that was better than me? We might answer, that, that, that girl was better than you. That guy was better than you. That job was better than you, Jesus. That website was better than you. That pursuit was better. That thing I did to like follow my dreams was better than you. Let's just be honest. And maybe we should ask, like, what, what did God do to you? Maybe the Lord's like, what did I do to you? And you might have some real beef, like, yes, I, had, I have disappointment. I had these things laid out, and my way my life was to go, and you didn't come through on your end of the deal. And Jesus says, well, remember. Remember what he's done for you. There's a, there's a story in the Gospels where Jesus is having a meal, and a girl walks in and starts to cry, and on Jesus' feet and anoint his feet with her tears and then wipe, like clean his feet with her tears and weeping at his feet. And a Pharisee sees this and says, oh my gosh, if Jesus knew what kind of woman that was, he would not allow her to be touching his feet. And Jesus tells a story of someone who's been forgiven a little bit of debt and forgiven a lot of debt. He says, who do you think loves me more? And the, the disciple answered, the one who's forgiven a lot of debt. And Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Have you forgotten how much Christ has loved you and has wooed you and has forgiven you and has done everything on heaven and earth to, to, to be near, to, for us to be near him? Us, all of us, not individual people, but all of us to be near him. Did you forget that? Remember, Jesus says, remember, remember where you've fallen, remember where you've fallen from. Go back there and do those things. And then repent. Repent is the best word in Christian vocabulary. It means that you can find a Savior when you turn, that you can turn around and find a Savior there waiting to deliver you. And he says, do. Do the works that you did at first. Jesus is not taking anything away from like living out true doctrine and, 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 and persevering and working hard. Do all those things, but under the motivation of love. Because I think what Jesus, I think what's really going on here is that they could not endure if it was just cold religion. You will not keep going if, you are, if, it, if what you're doing is out of cold religion. You can't keep going that way. The only way to truly endure is love for God. The only thing that really keeps you going is God's love for you and our love for him. That love relationship with God Almighty is the only way. Being motivated to love God and respond to his love is the only way to endure. It's the only way to endure this town. It's the only way to endure this world. It's the only way to endure this life. It's the only way to do good works rightly. It's love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if you did all these things but had not love, you are nothing. And that's what he's telling this church. If you do all these things and you don't have love, you, it won't amount to anything because I'm going to remove you from being a church. This is such a heavy warning. And it's a warning I want to sit in through the second set of worship. Let's pray.